Good morning. Morning. Let's go ahead and begin class with prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study. We thank you for your goodness, your love, your grace. We ask that your spirit will be with us to enlighten our minds and draw us close to you. We pray in your holy name. Amen. I received this email this week from a physician in California. And he says, Dr. Jennings, I can't begin to tell you what a blessing the God and your brain DVDs have been to my patients. I am continually getting great reports from them, and several have said they have never heard anything like this before. It has opened up new avenues of thought, and now they notice the imposed law ideation when they listen to sermons in church or on TV. The Bible study lessons have continued to feed us as well uh, uh, as, as we listen to the uh, lesson weekly. The Journal of the Watcher is truly inspired, and I have been telling my patients and church members about how this points out so clearly that the law is indeed the law of love. I especially like how this exposes sin and, as selfishness and self-preservation, the opposite of God's character and his design for us to be like him. I would like to have the cards to, prom- to promote this app, and I am out of the God in your brain uh, again. We are praying for this message to spread far and wide, but also to get the message back into the church. So, um, again, we have the cards. If you, This is what he was asking for. If you, if you guys want some, we have them. And if you have friends that go to other local churches around here, take some to them and ask them to go to their church and share them. And then on our, somebody posted this on our Facebook page this week. On Dr. Jennings and Come and Reason class. This is to you guys. After reading the blogs from the Compass magazine, it said, I felt compelled to write and let you know I am praying for you and your ministry and your outreach. I am also praying for those who need to live more fully in the love of Jesus Christ. This past summer, my sister sent me the link to come and reason lesson studies, and I have been, quote, going, unquote, to church ever since, sometimes twice a day. All my life I have lived in fear of God and his wrath, but I took comfort in the love of Jesus. It was as if Jesus was shielding me with his body from God's anger towards me, much like an abused mom will shield her children from an abusive father. So I grew up in a very contradictory, conflicted Adventist home, where at Sabbath sundown Friday night, was the beginning of our controversial showdown, and by Saturday sundown, we all felt a massive relief when it was over. Mm, I heard the, mm, you guys know. Okay. Needless to say, I went down the destructive path of tribulations and ego, but through it all, I always felt that Jesus was by my side. Finally, the biblical contradictions and what was going on in my daily life got to be too much, and I said, enough. The only truth I was going to follow was how Jesus lived his life here on earth, love one another as I have loved you. It was the message that gave the early Christians heart and soul, what they needed to face the Roman arena. I decided I wanted to have in my life the message that those early Christians had in their hearts when they faced their mortal death. Plus, I knew there was more to God than I had learned from my past, for Christ said, if you know me, you know the Father. So I'm ever grateful when I opened the door to come and reason. I am uplifted by the comments made in class too. When the one lady said, I th- uh, when the one lady said uh, it was really hard for her to rethink or to re-understand how she saw God, I thought, me too. Most lessons I listen to over and over again, read the notes, look up the text, go on a walk with God, and then listen to the lesson again. It is very hard to break down those contradictory walls of viewpoints where God says, I love the world so much, I gave my only begotten son, to where it is preached from our pulpits how bad, bad, bad we all are, and how God can't wait to get rid of bad, bad, bad people. I must say, it has been very hard to scrape the mark of the beast from my forehead and hand. I might have some deep scars from it, but I rejoice in the love and freedom I now have in my heart, mind, and soul. Thank you so much, Come and Reason class, for opening such a huge door for me, rather a whole new world for me, and I actually look forward to church now. I have passed on this message and link to my friends and family. They are also reaping the benefits of this message of true love. Even my mother has found comfort in Come and Reason classes. I would love for her to fully embrace the fact that she is part of the kingdom of heaven instead of hoping if she's only good enough. That just really breaks my heart. Thank you, Come and Reason class, for being part of my journey, and thank you for being part of my family. Amen. I think that deserves a And I want to thank you, class, our technical crew back here. You see, this, this is what it's all about. And I get emails like this from all over the world all the time from people who have come to experience uh, this perspective and free. We have some visitors from Brazil here today. And they told me the same thing. They've been listening to us for three years and raised Adventists, but this perspective freed them from fear, and now they have such a deeper, uh, more meaningful love relationship with the Lord. So thank you guys for your support. So lesson today, we're doing lesson number two, From Ears to Feet, in the uh, lesson guide, the book of Proverbs. 
And the bottom paragraph says, uh, it's not enough just to know about right and wrong. We need to know how to choose right and wrong. Training and wisdom consist in hearing proper instructions and in following and obeying what we have learned so that we don't end up walking in the wrong direction. And so I thought, how do we choose right and not wrong? What is, and before you make the choice, what is necessary before you actually make the choice? Reason, knowledge. Yeah, reason, knowledge, in other words, discernment about which one is right and wrong. Isn't that what's necessary? You have to be able to tell the difference before you make the choice. And, uh, so I thought, how do you, how do you get that ability? How is it we get the ability to discern the right from the wrong? Well, this is out of Hebrews chapter 5. Starting in verse 11. We have much to say about this, but it's hard to make it clear because you are no long, because you no longer try to understand. Hear that? You no longer try to understand. In fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's work all over again. You need milk, not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk, still being an infant, is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. But solid food is for the mature who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good and evil. So how do we, according to this text, get the ability to distinguish good and evil? What is it that is making the difference between the mature and the infant? The mature are doing something. Constant use. Constant use of mature food is helping them develop the, the ability to discern the right from the wrong. So then what would be the mature food? Well, maybe we can figure that out by looking at what Paul describes as being the infant formula. Another way to say that is the religious formula that infants like. And if you read the very next verses, which is Hebrews 6, 1 and 2, listen to what the infant formula is. Therefore, let us move beyond the elementary teachings. What is elementary? Is that the mature teaching? When you go to elementary school, are you in the, the, the graduate studies? No, this is the basic teaching. This is the infant formula. So let's move beyond the elementary teachings about Christ and be taken forward to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death, faith in God, Instructions about cleansing, rites of baptism, the laying on of hands, the resurrection from the dead, and judgment. Six things he lists as elementary. Baby food. So can we understand why this is baby food? Why this, if you focus on this, if you stay on this, if you feed on these ideas, you're not acquainted with righteousness. Well, what is the very first one he says? The very first thing he lists is repentance from acts that lead to death, meaning the do's and the don'ts. The do's and the don'ts. The commandments, behavior, religion, keeping track of the deeds, the record of sins in heaven. You see this basic stuff. This is infant formula. Now, it's not that this isn't part of the journey. It's just, it's the starting point. The infant stage. We can't grow physiologically until we're born into the world. We can't grow spiritually until we're reborn into Christ. So like newborn babes, though, we're to grow up. So there's a healthy level of repentance from the acts that lead to death. When we realize the truth about God's design for life, his character of love, what Christ has done for us, and how... Far away we are from his, his ideal for us, and our heart is broken in love, and we surrender to him, there's a healthy repentance. That's still basic, though. We're just now starting. We've just now come into a connected relation with him. We're still infants. But at this infant stage, and I want you to get your mind around this, when we come to conviction of our sinful selves, we're, we're still very typically very childlike. We feel guilty and ashamed about the bad things we have done. We live in fear of punishment and rejection. And at this stage, we're vulnerable to misunderstanding God, to having a distorted idea of what makes sin bad, to believing because we feel bad about ourselves. Now, remember, look back at your own life history. You've committed a sin. You're convicted. You feel bad. And because we feel bad about what we've done, we condemn ourselves in our own mind, 
And we believe God condemns us too. So we run and hide like Adam in Eden. So because we feel bad about ourselves, we accept the lie that God is mad at us. Because we punish ourselves in our own minds, we believe the lie that God wants to punish us. Because we want to do something to make up for our badness, we believe the lie that God needs something done to him to make up for our badness. Thus we fall victim to the false legal theology and gratefully accept the legal payment that Jesus has made to appease the angry wrath of the Father as our substitute. We are thankful to know that when the fa- that the Father won't punish us because Jesus took our punishment. We experience great relief and peace, but we're still unacquainted with righteousness. Can you see how this is very basic, level one, baby stuff? You know, I have patience. Oh, but it is so wonderful when a person who's been living in that self-condemnation, in that shame, in that guilt, comes to that point of, even under this distorted view, a, a legal forgiveness where they feel, I've been pardoned. Oh, I'm not guilty. He's not going to punish me. Even under that view, it's such a relief from the oppression of that self-imposed guilt that many live the rest of their life in that stage. That's where they want to stay. Infants. I have patients who uh, come from homes in which they have very nurturing, structured parents who protect, some might say overprotect. Um, and as these children sometimes get to adolescence, they become afraid, afraid of making mistakes, afraid of failing, afraid of not doing it right. And sometimes they don't want to grow up. They want to stay under someone else's care, having someone else take the responsibilities for their decisions. Sometimes infants in Christ have such peace, believing that everything's been paid. All their debts have been washed away. All the sins, past, present, and future, are already paid for Christ. I can't, and I just want to stay right there as an infant. Number two is faith in God. How is faith in God an infant formula? How is that infant stuff? It's a blind faith. It's a, it's an, an, an active faith. It's a, it's a not a changing faith. Possibly, but isn't it still just a starting point? Yeah, well, I think it's just a foundation. I mean, can you move, can you mature without faith in God? No. No. No, No, so it's still that starting point. We just have come to surrender. We just come to trust. We just come to, I trust you, I surrender. I now trust you with my life. How much growth? How much maturity? How much overcoming of of, uh, character flaws? How much uh, self-denial? How much maturing in our wisdom and discernment? How much of growth have we had? None. So faith in, faith in God is still infant stuff. It's important. It's part of it. We have to have infant formulas, babies to grow. But we don't want to stay simply there. We want to grow. Russell, somebody in the comment? To expand on your metaphor of the, uh, the swimming, experiencing swimming, the child has faith in her father to jump into the pool. She has a faith that the father has never heard her before, and, and that, that's a starting point. But yes, she has to still get in the water to experience swimming. That's the growth. That's the maturity. Oh, I like that. That's good. Faith can be deepened, too, to, to the point of the faith that Joseph had or the faith that, that Abraham had. That's, uh, that's a much deeper faith. This kind of faith of just having some type of a legal part, and I, I have faith that Jesus, Jesus is, is protecting me from the Father. They're still unacquainted with righteousness. The faith that grows into maturity is the faith. See, the infant faith, examples of infant faith in the Bible, Rahab. In faith, Rahab lied. This was infant faith. Or Gideon and the fleeces. Why did Gideon ask for the fleeces? Because his faith was strong? No. Or because his faith was weak? A more mature faith, the three worthies on the plain of Dura. We know, O Nebuchadnezzar, that God can deliver us from this fire. But even if he doesn't, we're not bowing. They had no word. They had no sign. They had no indication what God would do. But they trusted him with the outcome. Or the centurion who said to Christ, Hey, you just have to give a command. You don't need to come. You just say it. It'll be done. Jesus said, I've never seen so much faith in all of Israel. Or Paul going to his death in Rome. He had faith in God without being miraculously delivered from what was going to happen. He trusted him. So, next thing. Next infant formula. Instructions about baptism. How's this infant formula? Again, it's a starting point. Same thing, notice, first, 
Repentance from acts. They're convicted. We're sick. There's something wrong with us. We come to acknowledge, yes, I'm sick. I'm a sinner. I can't fix myself. I'm convicted. I need to repent from this, this bad stuff that's going on in my life. And God, I trust him. I come to recognize a power higher than myself. You see, it's like steps of the 12 steps, right? And, and, I, and I surrender. I have faith he'll fix me. And therefore, I want to make a public stand. Start my life anew. I'm going to wash the old away and start anew with my new life. This is infant stuff. This is still beginning. Acknowledging my past and accepting. And starting as a newborn. This is still new. This is rebirth. This is newborn stuff, right? This isn't the. But some people again stay here, and the infants want to get rebaptized every time they commit a really bad sin. You know what I'm talking about? How about laying on of hands? More infant stuff after we've been convicted, after we've surrendered to Christ in, 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 in faith and trust Him, after we've taken that public stand, then they lay on the hands to empower for our growth with the Spirit, for our development. Then, then, the, then the journey begins, then the development begins. It's the nurturing of the soul through the Spirit, laying on hands. Resurrection of the dead. How is this basic stuff? Baby stuff, baby formula. What's the teaching of the resurrection of the dead? What's its primary impact on the believer hope which takes away what fear fear it's exactly right it says in uh, hebrews that christ took upon himself um our uh, human flesh that by his death he might destroy him who has the power of death and deliver those who live all their lives in fear of death see we live in fear of death we're terrified and so one of the basic things to help us overcome our fear is hey there's a resurrection from dead from the dead it's like every time the prophets would have an angel come, the first thing that they did, they were terrified, and the first thing the angel said was, fear not. fear not. Okay, take away your fear. And so this doctrine for the baby is, hey, you know what, I know you're afraid to die, but don't worry, I've overcome death. There's a resurrection. You don't have to be afraid of death. And then eternal judgment. How's this baby formula? <laughs> Another basic teaching for infants, all who come, when we first come to Christ, where is our focus? Ourselves. How awful we are. How unforgiven. How guilt and shame-ridden we are. How, how we need deliverance. We're very focused on our own salvation when we first come to Christ. Fear of getting punished and, we, and, and relieved to experience God's grace and forgiveness and reassurance of resurrection. Yet like children, consumed with self, we want everything to be fair. Yeah, you know how, you know what I'm talking about? How kids, it's not fair. It's not fair. We want everything to be fair. And those who haven't repented, we want them to get what they, what is due them. I've repented. I've gone through the valley of the shadow of death. I've died to self. I've stopped eating meat. I've stopped going, working on Sabbath. I've stopped doing all these things. And they haven't. It's not fair. There, it's not fair. This, this is it. So God gives them a basic teaching. Infant formula. Basically says, there will be a final judgment. You can stop worrying. You can stop keeping score. You can stop holding resentment. You can forgive those. Trust me with the outcome. I'll take care of it. You don't have to keep account anymore. Basic teaching. But as we grow up and mature, we realize, wait a second. And we understand the judgment actually isn't a list of deeds done. The judgment is simply an accurate diagnosis of the condition of each person's character in the end. Who have partaken of Jesus and been renewed to have the law written on the heart and mind, to be like Christ in character, and who have rejected that and have solidified themselves in selfishness? And figuring out that the fair thing isn't to get payback for what was done wrong to you. The fair thing is that everybody gets healed and, and get yeah. everything right. The judgment is such a basic misunderstanding of how to fix things. Well, you used the metaphor a few weeks back about how... God would separate the wheat from the chafe, the, the mature from the immature. Yeah. So it's, it's, the, it's the people being judged that control that, not the, the judger. So how much, so we just went through six, oh, go, go ahead, yes. I was just going to add, when I say I quit eating meat, I keep the Sabbath, I don't go to theaters, it's I on the throne. Mm-hmm. We do it through sheer force of the will. But when you do think about it, God gave us the power through sheer force of the will to do it. But we do come to an understanding that he is the one 
who did it. Okay, okay. So, maturity is developed by practice, according to Hebrews. The mature are those who develop by practice the ability to discern the right from the wrong by constant use of mature food. I went through six teachings. How much of those six do you hear presented over and over and over again? It's like we can't wean people off of baby food. Infant formula. Well, here's a quotation from one of the founders of our church. It's found in Second Testimonies 129. If we mistake the wisdom of man for the wisdom of God, we are led astray by the foolishness of man's wisdom. Pause. My current, I have a current theory as to the number one wisdom of man that has been accepted as the wisdom of God. What do you think? This is my, and maybe there's one that's more, more ubiquitous, more deeply ingrained into the minds of men than this, but this is my current understanding. Any thoughts? Yes. Yeah, go ahead, Russell. God's law is like man's law. There you go. If we, the, the wisdom of man for the wisdom, God's law is no different. He's not a creator who builds the fabric of the cosmos and his laws are the protocols upon which reality actually operates. No! We've pulled him down and his laws are no different than man's laws. He makes rules and he's just more powerful to enforce those rules like we enforce rules. This is the wisdom of man. And if we do that, we are led astray by the foolishness of man's wisdom. If you read that article in Compass Magazine, you will see this contrasted back and forth over and over again. We keep presenting God's law of love, the design for life, how God is the creator and the sustainer of all life. And they keep coming back with God has arbitrary rules and he has to enforce those rules. Man's law woven in. Okay, here's the next sentence. Here's the great danger in many in, and they leave it blank, they have not an experience for themselves. I'm going to pause. What are the three threads of evidence? The big three. Scripture, science, and experience. Now, without experience, there's no, I'm gonna say, I'm gonna put this out there. Without experience, there's no acquaintance with righteousness. If we take the threads of scripture and the threads of science and don't apply them into the experience, we aren't transformed. So, Think about the person. In fact, I'll read this next section and give you the analogy. It says, Then they have not been in the habit of prayerfully considering for themselves with unprejudiced, unbiased judgment questions and subjects that are ever new and ever liable to arise. They wait to see what others will think. If these dissent is all that is needed to convince them that the subject under consideration is no account whatever. Although this class is large, it does not change the fact that they are inexperienced inexperience. Remember, they have not an experience for themselves. So back to the analogy of swimming. You can study swimming in a textbook. You can become an expert teacher of the physics on the chalkboard. But if you never get in the water and have no experience of swimming, then what happens when the boat goes down? You drown. And you need a lifeguard to pull you out. That's what she's saying. These people who have this theoretical, and this is what penal substitution theology does. It gives them a theoretical legal stuff that happens somewhere distant in the, in the courtrooms of heaven, but it's not happening here. It's not experiential. So, in fact, they are inexperienced. I'm going to keep going. Although this class is large, it does not change the fact that they are inexperienced and weak-minded through long yielding to the enemy and will always be as sickly as Babes, walking by another's light, living on another's experience, feeling as others feel, acting as others act. They act as though they had not an individuality. Their identity is submerged in others. They are mere shadows of those who they think are right. Wow. Unless these become sensible of their wavering character and correct it, they will all fail of everlasting life. They will be unable to cope with the perils of the last day. They will possess no stamina to resist the devil, for they do not know that it is he. Someone must be at their side to inform them whether friend or foe is approaching. And just back what she's saying here, they can't swim. They have no ability to think for themselves. They, they might have this theory, but they've never put it into practice. They can't reason. They can't weigh it out. They can't tell the difference between a truth and a lie. Consider this out of the book Education, page 17. This is Education 17. Every human being created in the image of God 
is endowed with a power akin to that of the Creator. Individuality, power to think and to do. The men in whom this power is developed are men who bear responsibilities, who are leaders in enterprise and who influence character. It is the work of true education to develop this power, to train the youth to be thinkers, not mere reflectors of other men's thoughts. And it goes on to talk about, in fact, I'm going to have to continue. Instead of confining their studies to that which men have said or written, let the students direct to the sources of truth, to the vast fields open to research in nature and revelation. Let them contemplate the great facts of duty and destiny, and the mind will expand and strengthen. Instead of educated weaklings, institutions of learning may send forth men strong to think and to act, men who are masters and not slaves of circumstances, men who possess breadth of mind, clearness of thought, and courage of their convictions. And that's what we need. You can't get that unless you learn to think for yourself. So what does a reflector do? Think about a bicycle reflector. We've all had bikes have a reflector on your bike. What does a reflector do? What's its function? Does it have any light of its own to give? Notice that. The reflector has no light to give. If you don't learn to think, you have no light to give. And Jesus said in Matthew 5, you are a light into the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put under a bowl. Instead, they put it on the stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father. You can't let a light shine that you don't have. So we can't be lights if we don't think for ourselves. I am concerned that some educators in our institution and our institutions are more interested in indoctrinating into right theology than teaching students how to think and reason and weigh out evidences. And that's why Come and Reason Ministries, and I've said this over and over, is not here to tell you what to think, but to stimulate you to think and teach you how to think, how to reason, how to weigh the evidence, so you can develop your own ability to discern the right from the wrong. So what's necessary to be able to choose the right from the wrong? The ability to discern the right from the wrong. And what's necessary to do that? Practice. We must practice thinking for some way in the evidences that God has provided. So I came across this article this week, and I thought we'd go through this. I found it quite profound, quite very helpful in discerning mature and immature. And we're going to go through, and uh, we're going to go through and, and see if we can't think it and reason through the meaning of what this article says. It's found in Christian Education, page 70. There are two classes of educators in the world. One class are those whom God makes channels of light. And the other class are those whom Satan uses as his agents who are wise to do evil. I'm going to pause right there. Two classes of educators. One, God makes agents of light. The other, agents of Satan to do evil. Now, the next sentence, can you think through and contemplate? I wonder what this author is going to suggest is the primary diverging thing that separates those who are agents of light from those who are agents of Satan. This is the next words. One class contemplates the character of God and increases in the knowledge of Jesus, whom God has sent into the world. This class becomes wholly given up to those things which bring heavenly enlightenment, heavenly wisdom to the uplifting of the soul. Every capability of their nature is submitted to God and their thoughts are brought into captivity to Christ. The other class is in league with the prince of darkness, who is ever on the alert that he may find an opportunity to teach others the knowledge of evil. What is the thing that, that's, that's primary that the, the educators of light present? The character of God. This is the primary thing. So, what would then be the knowledge of evil? Lies about God? And how do lies about God get introduced? The methodology that this happens, I'm going to tell you, watch for this methodology. It is the mixing of truth and error, truth and lies. And we see this, and if you want to go read that Compass Magazine article, you will see it. They take the truth about God's character of love and his law of love, the design law, and they mix it with human law and say God's law is both. They've mixed now human law with God's law. 
Or the source of, here's another mixing. God is the source of life, but he is also the source of death. Death comes out from God. We've mixed good and evil now in the character of God. This is what happens. This is what evil does. So, it says, uh, the other class is in league with the prince of darkness, who is ever on the alert that he may find an opportunity to teach others the knowledge of evil. If place is made for him, he will not be slow to press his way into heart and mind. Is, is it the Lord's purpose that false principles, false reasoning, and sophistries of Satan should be kept before the mind of our youth and children? Shall pagan and infidel sentiments be presented to our students as valuable additions to their store of knowledge? Pause. That's so important from all that you've taught us about the the convergence of Christianity and pagan teachings coming to be Christianity. That's exactly what she's saying. So what is the essence of paganism? The essence, the root of paganism. The primary teaching that will you will see. What is it? Appeasement. Appeasement theology. That God is angry, God is wrathful, and some legal payment must be made. Go read the Compass magazine. You will see that those who take the position against us intermix man's law with God's law, intermix uh, God as a source of life, as God as a source of uh, death, and they also teach that God, in order to be just, must be paid. And they teach that their security is not in a love relation with Jesus Christ, as Jesus said in John 3, that life eternal is they might know you, but their security is in a payment made to God to protect them from God. And they, they, they articulate this through. Yes. So, if God is also the source of, source of death, where's Satan? Yeah, see? That's, of course, it's, it's not biblical. This is Satan's goal. Let's keep reading the article. It says, The works of the most intellectual skeptics are works of mind prostituted to the service of the enemy. And shall those who claim to be reformers, who seek to lead the children and youth in the right way, uh, in the path cast upward... Imagine that God will be pleased with having them present to the youth that which will misrepresent his character, placing him in a false light before the young? God forbid. The greatness and power with which the Creator endowed Lucifer, he has perverted. And yet, when it suits his purpose, he can impart to men sentiments that are enchanting. Pause. This is an important point. There is in the character of God movement a group, a subgroup, that teaches that Satan is not able to do this. That Satan is a rabid dog who has lost all control, and that once God takes him off the leash, all he can do is destroy. Thus, they say in the Old Testament that every case in which it describes God as putting people into the grave, it was not God putting people in the grave, it was God taking Satan off the leash. And Satan has no ability to enchant or to speak kind words or to bless in any way. This is not true. Think it out for yourself. But it would be an error to believe that if God used his power in in the Old Testament in certain circumstances to put people into the grave, that this was an act of judgment or punishment upon sin. See, every act of God in the Old Testament was an act of mercy and love and therapeutically intervening to keep open the channel for the Messiah. So, and we'll continue with the quote now, with this idea that Satan is not a rabid dog who has no ability to alter his methods, that he can't, uh, and notice what the author says. Everything in nature comes from God, yet Satan can inspire his agents with thoughts that appear elevating and noble. He did not come to Christ with quotation, oh, excuse me, did he not come to Christ with quotations of scripture when he, when he designed to overthrow him with specious temptations. This is the way in which he comes to man, as an angel of light, disguising his temptations under the appearance of goodness and making men believe him to be a friend rather than an enemy of humanity. It is in this way that he has deceived and seduced the race, beguiling them with subtle temptations, bewildering them with specious temptations. What belief would you say is the most prominent in Christianity today? That confuses the mind of men about God. Beguiles humanity. It says beguiles humanity into Satan's camp. I, I think we've already said it. It's a lie about God's law. 
This is the number one infection in the minds of men that, that cause, and it affects every other teaching. You accept this imposed law construct, it taints all beliefs from the atonement to how we understand the stories in the Bible right on through to the final end of sin and sinners. Everything is changed by that one idea. Next, continue with the quote. Satan has ascribed to God all the evils to which the flesh is heir. Pause. What are the evils to which flesh is heir? In other words, what are we as fallen human beings driven to do by our humanity and our fallen natures? Yes, and what does that though look like? How do we function to people who do us wrong? When somebody does us wrong, what does the evil flesh want to do? Revenge. Eye for an eye. Eye for an eye, revenge. Now, so Satan has ascribed to God all the evils which flesh is heir, keeping on. He has represented him as a God who delights in the suffering of his creatures, who is revengeful and implacable. And and if you read that Compass Magazine article, they talk about God has to take vengeance. Justice requires that he punish. Uh, And some have to be burned longer, and God will use his power to perform a miracle to keep them alive to torture them before he kills them. (laughs) This is what they teach. It was Satan who originated the doctrine of eternal torment as a punishment for sin, because in this way he could lead men into infidelity, rebellion, and distract souls, and dethrone the human reason. Tell me, how does the doctrine of eternal torment dethrone human reason? What does dethrone human reason mean? What does it mean to dethrone anything? You can't make it congruent. Remove it from its position of leadership and authority. Human reason was given as the highest faculty God has given. Come let us reason together. Though your sins are like scarlet, they'll be white like snow. Uh, it is, the truth will set you free, but truth is uh, is uh, accessed through your reasoning with God. So he wants to dethrone this ability to reason. How does the internal torment dethrone human reason? It's incongruent with God's character. Ah, it's incongruent. I like this word, incongruent. Uh, I, I use the word antithetical or contradictory. Yes. And when you get right down to it, you can't stand it. I've been to hundreds of funerals where the preacher believes in an everlasting hell, burning in hell, and I've never heard anyone preached into hell. That's right. They can't stand the idea. Yes, but here's how, here's how it's antithetical. Because we teach, on the one hand, that God is love. But we teach, on the other hand, that he'll burn people in hell forever. This is contradictory. You can't hold these simultaneously. So how is human... Now, notice the compromise that dethrones human reason. Well, God's ways are higher than my ways. I take that on faith. I won't think about it. Human reason just got sidelined. It's dethroned. But there's another way it happens, too. Here's another way. Um, with this doctrine of eternal torment. Well, the other way is God doesn't really have wisdom or foreknowledge. See, because he created them in Eden with eternal life. And this is part of the, the understanding of this doctrine of eternal hell, that some part of humanity was created immortal in Eden and cannot die. And therefore, God, but yet we teach God has foreknowledge and he's all-knowing and he's all-wise and he's all-loving. Well, think that through. Either God doesn't have foreknowledge and didn't realize, and oh, I'm so sorry, they're tormented now, I had no idea they were going to do this, and now he's not all-knowing and all-wise. Or he still knew and he did it anyway, which makes him sadistic and he's not loving. So we can't think about that either. Well, no, we can't. We just take that on faith. Somehow it's loving. I don't really figure it out. But you know what? I just don't think about that. And if you do try to reason, oh, that's dangerous because that yes. can get you into doctrines that aren't what we teach. Now, are there is, is <laughs> eternal torment the only doctrine that dethrones human reason? No. No. But he's also just. This is another one, the way it's taught. God loves you, but if you don't love him, he will kill you. You think about that. It does not work. It's contrary to God's law. It's contrary to his character. It's contrary to his nature. And the only way to understand that is to not think. And if you really want to see some examples of that, go read that article. And then read the comments coming back. You will see how when evidence is put to them, they don't think. They deny and they distort. Well, don't a lot of preachers take things out of context, too? And you can find things in the Bible that... If you just take those few words about I'm a jealous God or all that. And, and yes, exactly. And you, you implant that. And this is why we have to harmonize the three threads. Science, scripture, and experience. They all have to show the same conclusion. 
before we can have real confidence. So heaven looking down and seeing, going on with the article, heaven looking down and seeing the delusions, notice that. What are delusions? Fixed false beliefs. That's the definition of a delusion, a fixed false belief. And some of these, some of these beliefs, they are fixed and they are false. This is delusional. Okay? And seeing the delusions into which men were led knew that a divine instructor must come to earth. Men in ignorance and moral darkness must have light, spiritual light. For the world knew not God, and he must be revealed to their understanding. So according to this author, what's the primary issue that men didn't know and they needed revealed to them? God. They didn't know God. They believe that God is implacable, revengeful, taking all the weaknesses of fallen humans, and that's what God is like. Truth looked down from heaven and saw... Yes, I just read that. Okay. No. No. Truth looked down from heaven and saw not the reflection of her image. For dense clouds of moral darkness and gloom enveloped the world. And the Lord Jesus alone was able to roll back the clouds, for he was the light of the world. What is moral darkness? Moral darkness. What is moral darkness? You don't even know what right is anymore. There you go. You can't tell the difference between right and wrong. What's an infant? What are the mature, those who've developed the ability to do what? Tell the difference between right and wrong. Moral darkness, you can't tell the difference between right and wrong. You may have come to repentance, but you're still a baby and your mind is still unenlightened. You haven't matured in your thinking. You need, and think about children. Children need mommies and daddies to tell them what's right and wrong. They don't have that ability yet. By his presence... He could dissipate the gloomy shadow that Satan had cast between man and God. Darkness covered the earth and gross darkness the people. Through the accumulated misrepresentations of the enemy, many were so deceived that they worshipped a false god clothed with the attributes of the satanic character. What does this look like? What does it look like to worship a false god clothed with the attributes of the satanic character? And is it happening today? 34,000 sects of Christianity is what it looks like. 34,000 different sects of Christianity, he said, all confused. (laughs) Well, Tim, if you think about it, in in political campaigns, for instance, no one ever really answers the truth. They just pile on with more and more of the same. They repeat what they've already said over and over and over. So in Christianity, (laughs) what does this look like today? You know, the prophet Malachi prophesied before the coming of the Lord, the great and terrible day of the Lord, something was going to happen. What was going to happen? Did he prophesy? Prophet was going to come. Elijah. Elijah. Now, what was Elijah's mission when he was the first Elijah on earth? What was his mission? God God worshiped him. Baal Baal worshiped Baal. It was it was a call to make a distinction between his God like Baal or his God like Yahweh, and the primary distinction. Y'all remember, right? Baal. Baal was the son of El, as in Elohim, El Shaddai. Baal was the son. Baal was the God who brought the weather and, and fertility and, and uh, the crops each year. Baal fought against um, Leviathan, the great serpent. Baal fought against the God of death, Moat. In his battle with, with Moat, Baal dies, rises again to bring life to the earth. This was Baal. So what's wrong with worshiping a God who's the son of El, who fights the serpent, who fights death, who dies on our behalf to bring us life? What is wrong with this God? Thank you. I heard it in the back. That Baal required appeasement, a a penalty. Something had to be paid to Baal. He was an angry God who would punish sin and must be appeased. This is Baal worship. And when we worship a God like that, where Jesus died to appease his father, we're worshiping Baal. This is a false God. So it says the teacher from heaven, no less than the personage of the Son of God, came to earth to reveal the character of the Father to men that they might worship him in spirit and in truth. What was it Christ came to reveal? The character of God. Uh, Christ revealed to men the fact that the strictest adherence to ceremonial ceremony and form would not save them. For the kingdom of God was spiritual in its nature. This is huge. Huge, 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 huge. What does the kingdom being spiritual in its nature mean? Yes, you have a comment. Well, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but uh, you said about this article in the Compass magazine, and also last week you mentioned 300 pages of blogs, you know, that God's law is imposed. The Ten Commandments are imposed. Am I misunderstanding? I didn't read any of that. 
Well, if God, if God's law, the Ten Commandments, is, is, is his character, how can they be imposed? God's characters, you can't impose that. Yes. The way that it is taught by the other side, they teach it that it is imposed. God, the Ten Commandments. Yes. Yes. It's yes. imposed, but how can they argue that? I mean, I haven't read any of those things, laws. Yes. The Ten, because they don't understand the purpose of the Ten Commandments. They actually see the Ten Commandments no different than ours, a list of rules that we must keep. Rather than understanding the Ten Commandments, we're not the law that was broken in heaven. They're an expression of the law. Hear what I'm saying? Law broken in heaven was not the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments are an expression of that law that was broken in heaven. Do you see the difference? Okay, the law broken in heaven is the law of love. The Ten Commandments, the first four, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. The last six, love your neighbor as yourself. They're an expression of what love looks like, and they can be understood in two ways. And the Scripture tells us why they were given. See, the Ten Commandments were not always in existence. Everybody understand that? There was, there was a time when, when there was no Sabbath prior to the creation of this planet. There was a time angels didn't need a, a law to, of sin passing down through the generations or to honor their mothers and fathers. This was a distillation of the law of love specifically for this creation in sin. Adam and Eve didn't even have the Ten Commandments. They didn't need it. There was nothing in their, in their, in their perfect being in Eden that said that, that the sins of the fathers are going to pass down three and four generations. That wasn't going to happen in Eden. Father and mother. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, this particular law was given for two purposes. One, to, as a hedge of protection and a diagnostic instrument to expose sin. Paul said the law was given that sin might increase or inbound, meaning that the, we could understand how sick we are. He said, I thought I was righteous until the commandment came and diagnosed me, and now I realize I'm terminal and I'm dying. So the, t- the law was given to bring us to conviction and then lead us back to Christ who will heal us. So that was one purpose it was given. Second purpose, it was also given as a promise. If you understand before the actual commandments, the first commandment, it says, I am the God or the Lord God who brought you out of Egypt. Uh, and then it goes on to say, you shall have no... And, and the point being is, if you come back to me and trust me and let me do my work in your life, which is the new covenant, I'll write my law in your heart and mind, when that happens... You will have no other gods before me. When I finish my work in you, you won't take my name in vain. You won't make false images. You won't desecrate my Sabbath. You won't murder. You won't commit adultery. You won't dishonor your parents. You won't steal. This is what you will look like. It was a promise what it would look like. This was not an imposed list of rules that we had to keep. Amen. Okay? Yes. And it was even somewhat of an infantile presentation in and of itself because it says, you know, don't kill, don't murder, whatever the word is. Jesus came along and said, look, you're thinking of a life for a life. I'm telling you, if you do it in your heart, if you do it in your head, you've broken that commandment. But they didn't get that. And it it wasn't even worded that way. God was trying to take them at a time when they were killing and eating each other to something where he could take them to a much higher meat level. Sure, sure. So, So going on with this quote, it says, Christ came to the world to sow it with truth. Where is truth sown? Exactly. Notice he came to put truth back into the spirit temple. That's where he's working. Okay. He held the keys. He held the keys to all the treasures of wisdom and was able to open doors to science and to reveal undiscovered stores of knowledge were it essential to salvation. He presented to men that which was exactly, now notice these words. He presented to men that which was exactly contrary to the representations of the enemy in regards to the character of God. Exactly contrary. Well, what did Christ reveal in his life? The woman caught in adultery? No judgment. Neither do I condemn you. Condemnation does not come from God. Uh, Those who put him on the cross, his worst enemies. forgive Forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Exactly contrary. Are we still having problems with this today? Exactly contrary to the character of God, and sought to impress upon men the paternal love of the Father, who so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. He taught them honesty, forbearance, mercy, and compassion, enjoining upon them to love not only those who loved them, but also those who hated them and and treated them despitefully. In this he was revealing to them the character of the Father. 
who is long-suffering, merciful, gracious, slow to anger, and full of goodness and truth. So what was revealed about the Father? If you accept that you've seen Jesus, you've seen the Father. Jesus said in John uh, 16, 26, I will not pray the Father for you, for the Father loves you himself. Do you understand penal substitution theology denies this? That you cannot be safe with God unless Jesus is there presenting his payment to his Father. And without that payment presented by Jesus, his blood, his blood, then the Father will be required by law and justice to kill you. This is an infection of thought. Our church can't complete its mission with this lie uh, oppressing and darkening. Darkness covers the people, a gross darkness, the people. Linda. Um, Just to back you up on that, Isaiah 1, uh, starting at 24, says, Therefore the Lord, the Lord Almighty, the Mighty One of Israel declares, Ah, I will get relief from my foes and avenge myself on my enemies. I will turn my hand against you. I will thoroughly purge away your dross and remove all your impurities. I will restore your judges in the days of old, your counselors at the beginning. Afterward, you'll be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. Zion will be redeemed with justice, her penitent ones with righteousness. So do you hear what he's saying? Vengeance from God is the vengeance of a doctor on a sick patient with an infection. The doctor takes vengeance on the infection to cure the patient. God, the doctor does not take vengeance on the patient. The vengeance is on the disease that's killing the patient. We are infected with fear, selfishness, lies, distortions, rebellious hearts, and God takes a, a, a vengeance against sin to, to purify us, to remove our defects, so that we are stored to righteousness. That's good. So Christ declared the mission he had come to earth to do. He declared his mission. What do you think that is? Before I, what do you think this author says that Christ's mission is that he declares? Reveal God. It's, it's going on with the going on with the article. He says in his last public prayer, "Quote, O righteous Father, the world has not known you, but I have known you, and these you have, uh, and these have known you who you have sent me, and I have declared unto them your name, and I will declare it that the love wherewith you have loved me may be in them, and I in them." Notice, he declares the name, the character of the Father, so that the love that he had with the Father might be in us. That's the reason he declares it, that God's love might actually be in us. Yes? It's such a subtle distortion of all Christianity. When Jesus' mission was to reveal the Father, we make Jesus' mission simply about Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Even when we celebrate Easter, it's all focused on what Jesus did. Through a penal model of legal payment, and it's all distorted. But what he did was to reveal the Father, and we never get to that part. When Moses asked the Lord to show him the glory... His glory, the Lord said, I will make all my goodness pass before you. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and that will by no means clear the guilty. I want you to think, reason with me. What does it mean? By no means will clear the guilty. The penal, the penal group will say, see, he's keeping a record. And if you don't get the blood payment, the legal payment, then he will, by justice, have to inflict that torment and kill you. But that, cause that's justice. He will not clear you. Is that what it means? It means he won't take away your freedom of choice. Yes. See, God cannot heal a mind and transform a character against the free will of that person. Thus, he cannot get your mind around this. He cannot clear the conscience, clear the heart, clear the mind, clear the character of the guilty who don't trust him. When he says he can by no, minds, no, by no means clear the guilty, he's actually talking about what was read in Isaiah over here. Clearing the defects in the actual character. He can't do it if we don't trust him. This isn't some legal punishment thing, but that's how it's distorted and presented. And it diverts the mind away from actually experiencing this. Because we believe a false security in some legal transaction going on in the record books of heaven and we don't actually ever get transformed. We stay babies. When we are able to comprehend the character of God as Moses did, we too shall make haste to bow down in adoration and praise. Jesus contemplated nothing less than that the love wherewith thou hast loved me should be in the hearts of of his children that they might impart the knowledge of God to others. 
See, we got to know him so that we have his love, and with that love, we impart that same knowledge to others. That's the plan of what an assurance is this, that the love of God may abide in the hearts of all who believe in him. Oh, what salvation is provided, for he is able to save to the uttermost all who come unto God by him. In wonder, we exclaim, how can these things be? But Jesus will be satisfied with nothing less than this. Why will he be satisfied with nothing less? There's satisfaction theology. Satisfaction theology says that God was angry and wrathful, and only the perfect blood of his son would satisfy his wrath. No. No. A parent whose child is dying of cancer will not be satisfied with anything less than the cancer going into remission. They're not satisfied with 80% healing. They want 100% healing. God is not satisfied until his children are perfectly healed and restored. Those who are partakers of the sufferings here uh, uh, of his humiliation endure for his namesake are to have the love of God bestowed upon them as it was the, as, as was the love of the son. One who knows has said the father himself loves you. One who has had an experimental experimental knowledge of the length and the breadth and the height and the love of God, depth of the love of God, has declared unto you this amazing fact. This love is ours through faith in the Son of God. Therefore, with connection with Christ, our connection with Christ means everything to us. We are to be one with him as he is one with the Father. And then, and then we are beloved by the infinite God as members of the body of Christ, as the branch of the living vine. Think that through. We are one with Christ, and then we are beloved. Reason with me now. See, some will say, see, God is angry. Until you accept Jesus' payment, he doesn't love you. No, doesn't, while yet, while we were yet sinners, Christ, for God so loved the world that he, God always loved us. So what does this mean? What does this mean? What is it talking about? We cannot be hyphen loved by God until we're connected with Christ. Do you understand what that means? We can't be loved. It's not talking about the Father's ability to love. It's talking about our ability to receive that love. The love of God cannot be in us until we are connected to Christ. Any more then the nurturing of the, of the parent stock can be in the branches until they're grafted in. The love comes from God through Christ to us. If we're not connected to Christ, the love can't flow through us. That's what it means we are not beloved of the Father until we're connected to Christ. Or in, connected to Christ, then we become beloved of the Father. We are loved in that way. Um, Boy, there's, there's just a couple more paragraphs, but I'm going to have to leave those for you to study out on your own. Um, this was a tremendous article. It has many more things. Do you see how, how just taking it line by line, thinking it and reasoning it through? Are you seeing a, a message in here? Yes, Linda. Well, I just wanted to um, look at Zechariah's song for a minute in Luke 1, starting at verse 6. This is John the Baptist before he was born. His father, or as he was born, his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come and redeemed his people. He's raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he said through the holy prophets of long ago. Salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show mercy to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our father Abraham, to rescue us from the hand of the enemies and to enable us to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all of our days. So again, transformational in the believer. I encourage you to go to the notes, finish the article. We didn't get into the rest of the lesson. There's some really fun stuff in the rest of the lesson about how our words that we express react back upon our minds and actually cause changes in us. It's not just an expression of the heart, but a, trans, uh, a, uh, a reaction back upon the heart and mind about how do you balance what love looks like with, with healthy boundaries. It's also part of the lesson, the wisdom of, of uh, not loaning to those who are not able to pay you back, so forth. And then what wisdom do we learn from the ant in Wednesday's lesson? A long list of things that we can learn from the ant. 
it in, in wisdom. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you are exactly as Jesus revealed you to be. What beauty, what love, what, it's, it's amazing, it's beyond words. We are only barely scratching the surface of your infinite character of love. We have so much more to learn, so much more to experience, but we pray that we'll go beyond cognitive understanding to actually experience in our life the transforming power of your presence. The Spirit may take all you've achieved, reproduce it in us, and and then knowing that love, that you may make us effectual in going out and sharing this message with others because, Lord, the church has, has really been infected with a distortion about you that has paralyzed it from taking this message to the world. And we ask for your the outpouring of your Spirit to mobilize the people who love you to be able to take this message that you might come soon. We pray in your holy name. Amen.